Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Tixam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Jewel Ornament of Liberation, Chapters 15 through 17 The Perfection of Diligence, The Perfection of Meditative Concentration, and The Perfection of Wisdom Awareness by Lama Tom Broadwater. Once we have established generosity, ethics, and patience in our Dharma practice, the next three of the six perfect virtues help us to apply ourselves to meditation and Dharma practice. Cultivating diligence reverses our habits of laziness and complacency, and diligent meditation brings us to the discovery of our own inner wisdom. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon. I'm Tom Broadwater, and I'm associated with the Columbus KTC. I don't know if anybody uh, in this group has been near the uh, the uh, building site, but they now have the structure for the uh, the roof, and it's a very very imposing building. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, by uh, April or May, or maybe even sooner, we don't know. Uh, this uh, this building is going to be completed. Um, it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, I do have to put in a plug here, and that is uh, while fundraising is going uh, well, there is still a gap in what is needed. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the uh, center, the folks could move into the center without a mortgage and you could help do that uh, with your $10, $5, $20, whatever you have available to you uh, to help close that gap. Uh, but it's a, it's really, despite all the uh, difficulties we're experiencing one right now, uh, this is one bright spot in our lives. Uh, and we're, again, we're looking forward to, to uh, coming there uh, in the near future. So uh, let's begin our talk. And uh, what we're going to do today is take uh, some chapters out of the book, The Jewel Ornament of Liberation by Gampopa, uh, and it, the commentary done by Tongu Rinpoche. Uh, many of you have this book. Uh, we've been reading uh, from it and uh, learning from it for the past couple of months. Uh, it's, uh, the book itself is a key text in the uh, Kaju lineage uh, of Tibetan Buddhism. It really captures the essence of the, uh, the lineage's Maham, uh, Mahayana teachings. Again, as I said, it was written by Gampopa in about the 12th century. Uh, Gampopo was one of the most illustrious students of Milarepa. Uh, they both have very interesting uh, 
biographies. Um, we don't, uh, we, I don't have time here today to, uh, to talk about their life histories, but uh, extraordinary lives they led. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, this book is uh, outlines what's called the graduated path or long rim. Basically, it starts uh, at the beginning of our path and leads us right on up to Buddhahood. Um, and it's very comprehensive. It's basically an outline form uh, and much could be said about that outline, but, uh, and that's what we've been doing in the last couple of months. The book is basically in six major divisions. <clears throat> Uh, uh, and they basically, again, uh, outline uh, our path to, to Buddhahood. Uh, the book starts out with describing what is uh, called the, the primary cause for our Buddhahood. And that, of course, is our Buddha nature. Uh, our, our vast potential for growth. That would be one way to explain it, our Buddha nature. Uh, if we didn't have that Buddha nature, then of course we couldn't, uh, we could not progress on to Buddhahood. Then the, the next thing he talks about is what is the support for this path? And he says, it's our precious human body our precious human existence, that we have this, this body, this existence that uh, is perfectly aligned towards Buddhahood. We have all the resources uh, we need. Of course, we have obstacles in our way, but in fact, we have this perfect opportunity based upon all of our resources to gain Buddhahood. Then he talks about, in the third part of the book, he talks about the conditions, what contributes uh, to our uh, going on this path. And he says, it's our spiritual friends, our teachers. They help us uh, to, to go along on this path. We couldn't do it without them. They are a necessary condition. And if you think about it, if we tried to do it all by ourselves, for any number of reasons, it wouldn't work. Uh, basically, because we are pretty ego fixated, and we need so, and we can often go off onto ego's paths. Uh, we get seduced by. Uh, some of the reasons that uh, ego will, will provide us. So we do need good teachers to keep us uh, within, within the path. Then, then the next thing he talks about are methods, the methods to gain Buddhahood, to, to get us along on the path. And he starts out by, by giving us the meditations on the thoughts that uh, lead us to the Dharma, thoughts of the preciousness of our lives, the impermanence of our lives, 
the, uh, the whole idea of karma. And finally, the unsatisfactoriness of our current existence. All these thoughts are like precursors to our getting onto the path. They lead us there. It's important that we contemplate them, that we think about them, uh, and that that will lead us uh, to the Dharma path. Then we, uh, he talks about loving kindness, the necessity of developing a kind heart, and then developing a foundational attitude of bodhicitta, this heart and mind of awakening, this desire for liberation, not just for ourselves, but for all beings. This is the heart of the matter in Mahayana Buddhism, bodhicitta, heart and mind of awakening. And then having done all these things, we then come to taking refuge. We're ready to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then, once we have done all of that, we're ready to practice. Practice virtue, the virtues of what are called the paramitas, the six paramitas, the paramitas of generosity, ethics, patience, diligence. And I love this, the way uh, Trangra Rinpoche describes the next one, meditative concentration. And then finally, and this also, I like the way he describes it, is wisdom awareness. So all these virtues, the virtues that a bodhisattva, someone on the path, someone seeking liberation for themselves and for all beings, not just for themselves selfishly, but for all beings, they practice these virtues. Uh, so last week, uh, Marcus Casey described very beautifully the first three uh, virtues, the virtues of generosity, uh, of uh, ethics and patience. He did a wonderful job on that. And I certainly recommend to all of you, if you now uh, listen to that recording, to go back and, and, uh, and get it because it, it's, he did a wonderful job. So today I'm going to talk about the, the last three virtues, the virtues of uh, diligence, meditative concentration, and wisdom awareness. <laughs> it's sort of funny that I'm given the task of, of talking about these three, because if you look at me, I'm not that diligent. My meditation practice isn't that great, and I certainly do not have uh, wisdom awareness. I'm working on them like everybody else, but I, I certainly don't have them in abundance. They say that people, there are some people that have no realization or experience themselves, but are able to uh, very clearly talk about realization and uh, 
and experience. Then there are people that actually have relation, uh, realization and experience, but can't explain it. And then there are finally people like myself that have no realization, no experience, and also have difficulty explaining it. So, so you're left with me here today to describe things that are, are um, uh, not in my possession. So I'm going to rely very heavily on the text itself. And very infrequently am I going to deviate from the text itself. Uh, once in a while, I'll give you a, a few examples, but it's basically going to be uh, the, the text itself. So let's begin by talking about diligence. What is diligence? Well, first of all, we have to say that in order to practice any of the virtues, we have to have a certain amount of diligence, right? That seems only reasonable. Uh, because without it, without some diligence, we're going to be lazy. We're not going to produce any results. And we really can't assist other beings. And finally, what happens if we aren't diligent? We're sort of haphazard in applying uh, our practice. So specifically, what is it? Well, what is it not? It's not like I'm a thief. <laughs> it's not like the diligence of someone who's doing something wrong. And you, we have to say in some respects, there may be very diligent thieves out there. It's rather the diligence that delights in virtue. That's the definition of diligence. Diligence is delighting in the performance of virtue. Its opposite is obviously laziness. And according to uh, Gampopa, we can divide laziness up into three areas. Apathy or sloth, <clears throat> that's one. Two would be laziness of discouragement, which is interesting. I, I really enjoy talking about this aspect uh, of laziness. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. And finally, the third aspect of uh, laziness is laziness caused by being involved in lower aims. That's an interesting one, too, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute also. Let's talk about the first one, one that we are all very familiar with, which is <laughs> apathy and sloth. It's our un, uh, unwillingness to act, not being prepared to do anything at all. You know, sometimes if we just prepared a little bit more, we could perform acts uh, of virtue. Being prepared is an important part of the performance of virtue. But if you don't even want to prepare, 
then you can't do it. So the whole, the point of this is very simply this. We have to want to overcome this habit we have of wasting precious time. You and I both have this. I have been, as, as many of you have been confined uh, by COVID for the last almost year. Now, if I had been more diligent in my practice, I could be much further along than I am. And why is that? It's because sometimes I prefer to waste my precious time rather than using it appropriately. Right now, for many of us, this is a golden opportunity to practice. And we waste it. It's laziness. <laughs> we have to admit that. So here's the, here's the deal. Even if we can't be as diligent as we might want to be, we can spend a little more time in practice because even one moment, one hour more in practice is going to produce a result that's going to help. It's worth it. So even if you can't be as diligent as others may be, we can improve on that a bit. In the text, they talk about we should practice as if we were like the fellow who's sitting uh, in meditative posture and a snake crawls up in his lap. He jumps up and gets moving. That's the kind of diligence they talk about in the text. Or they talk about the woman whose hair is on fire. I think that's a bit uh, sexist because you know men would probably do the same thing. But they they talk about that in the in the text as women whose hair is on fire. Of course, in my case. <laughs> no hair to put on fire. But the point being is that we would, you know, there's a sense of urgency about needing to practice. When we get up in the morning, having a sense of urgency, like the man or the woman whose hair is on fire or who has a snake in their lap. Now there's this laziness of discouragement, which happens when we belittle ourselves. We do this, and it's so unnecessary. We say things like, I'm useless. I can't do anything. I can't work towards enlightenment. I have too many negativities. And the other thing we also do is look where they are. They're so far ahead of me. And look where I am. Poor me. It's all unnecessary. 
And if we need some further reason to understand that that's unnecessary, all we have to do is go back to the beginning of this book where we talked about our Buddha nature. We have this infinite capacity to grow. And okay, so this is where we are right now. And this is where we are right now because of what we have done up to this point. But that does not have to determine where we go from here. That's up to you. It's up to me. We determine that. It's for sure that if we make an effort, we will have some results. But it's also for sure that if we make no effort, nothing will change. So we have to examine very closely our, our uh, attitudes about ourselves and what we can accomplish. And the other thing I want to point out to all of us, this is not a competition. It's not about trying to be better or, or looking at someone as a competitor who's done better than us. Dharma practice has nothing to do with that. That's insane. I see it sometimes in Dharma practitioners, but it has no place. It is not dharmic to, to get into a competition with someone else about their practice. So if you don't try, you won't make it. If you do try, there will be some progress. Finally, there's this uh, laziness that is caused by, uh, as the book says, involvement in lower aims. Well, you know, you and I, I think everyone here, are householders. That's what they call us. We, we have our apartments, we have our homes, we have our toys, we have our uh, friends, we, and all those things. We're not monks. So a certain amount of life uh, is taken up with these, what we might call lower aims. We have to clean our house. We have to go to work. We have to do all those sorts of things. That's not an issue here. The fact is, one of our leading uh, lineage fathers, Marpa, was a householder. So that's not the issue. The issue is really one of priorities. I was talking to a fellow a couple of years ago. He was beginning his uh, Dharma practice, his meditation. And uh, he was saying he was having trouble developing his morning practice. So I said, well, how does your day begin? He said, well, I get up, I look at my iPhone, I see if I have messages. Then um, I go out and I get the paper and I 
read the headlines and uh, then I prepare uh, a breakfast. And then if I have time, I may practice. <laughs> so, you know, I said, well, is there some way we could reprioritize things a bit? And he started looking at, the, yeah, I could wait to look at my emails until I got to work. The paper could, uh, I could wait on that. I don't need to know all the news before. And, and so I, I process that looking at what we might call these lower aims, he came to carve out time to actually practice. So when we say we don't have time to practice, it's oftentimes because of our pursuit of these other things, which are not bad. I can't say looking at the paper is bad. I can't say looking at our emails uh, is, has anything that's bad about it, but it's a lower aim that I, to think about this. Our Dharma practice is about leading ourselves and others to liberation. And if we really think about that, if we really thought about that, that our practice is leading us little bit by little bit to our liberation, would we all not be more, much more diligent? So once in a while, we have to stand back from our practice and say, why am I doing this? What's the point of this? And if we don't understand its purpose and its point, then we need to look at that a bit. We also may need to go back to the four reminders. Life is precious and short. We, we need right now to look at what its meaning is. We need right now to recognize that life is like is like a bubble on a mountain stream. It comes and it goes. We don't have a lot of time. We're getting short on time here. So I do have a lot to cover today. So I'm not going to do everything that uh, I had uh, planned to do in terms of talking about diligence. I'm going to wind up by saying that we can apply our diligence to a couple of areas. The first area is working on our disturbing emotions, our anger, our jealousy. Sometimes we say to ourselves, I'm just hot-headed. I'm just, I'm just a jealous type. And we talk about it as if <laughs> this mind is not our own. We can apply diligence to working on this mind, to controlling this mind, to bringing it under our rule. It's not like the mind should rule us. We should be ruling our mind. So we apply a certain amount of diligence to bringing that under control. The other thing is, we can apply diligence to actually practice the paramitas. Practice, it takes a certain amount of diligence, as we said, to actually be generous, to actually 
apply ethical standards, to actually to, to meditate. It takes a certain amount of diligence. And so we can apply that diligence to the practice of virtue. And then finally, and this is a very beautiful one, we can apply our diligence to benefit other beings. You see folks, and uh, I, I think uh, right now people in the health professions who are being very diligent, very precise, very caring in their benefiting other beings. They, we can take them for examples. They're working very long, hard hours for the benefit of others. And, you know, maybe we can't do all that they do, but we, we can apply ourselves to benefiting others. You might say uh, we can develop a proficiency list for our, the coming year. We're going to become more proficient in our practice. We're going to be more proficient in our virtuous conduct. We're going to be more diligent in our trying to benefit others. It's sort of a proficiency list. That comes, this proficiency list comes from my days of being a school teacher. So we can develop proficiencies in these by being diligent. So let's, let's go on to the next virtue. And I love the way Changa Rinpoche describes it. He's, he calls it meditative concentration. That is the next parameter that we're going to talk about. So as we travel this path to liberation, we try to eliminate the mistakes that separate us from enlightenment, right? That's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. And the point that we that Tranga Rinpoche makes is all these, all these mistakes are in our mind. All of them. And when these mistakes that are in our mind are eliminated, our Buddha nature starts to manifest. And the mistakes that are in our mind are the mental poisons of ignorance, bewilderment, anger or aversion, a desire or attachment. And the instructions on the paramitas in terms of remedies are that if we have desire or attachment, we apply generosity and ethics to our uh, uh, attachments or to our desire. Now, how does that work? Uh, it's, it's a little curious here. How does generosity work at diminishing our desire? What is desire? Desire is about what I want, what I need, what I like, what, what I want you to do. 
And so to counteract that desire, what do we do? We, we be generous to others. We go out to others. So if desire and attachments are something really strong in you, and each one of us can sort of make an assessment as to where we are in terms of these poisons. Usually one predominates, but I'll, I'll tell you a little secret here. Even if there is this one that predominates, the others are there too also. But by working on this one that predominates, we can work on all of them. So if desire uh, is, uh, predominates your life, then you work on using generosity and ethics. Ethics basically provides defenses, you might say, the vows that we take, uh, the fences that we put up to our selfish behavior. That's one way to look at ethics. If anger's the problem, well, then you, you uh, apply patience. And again, this patience was something that Marcus Casey talked about last week. And he did, uh, again, as I said, a great job on that. And so if you, you want to know about that, go back to that. And then the, the other thing to recognize here is that all of these mental afflictions are the result of ignorance. They, 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 they cause all negative states. Ignorance causes all negative states. And basically ignorance is not seeing an object, which is anger or desire, not seeing that object for what it is. And, uh, and so we become attached to it. And attached to an object that is unworthy of our regard and our attachment. If we really understood anger, we wouldn't want to get involved in it. But, but oftentimes, because of our ego um, fixation, when someone does something that we don't like, we become angry. But anger is unworthy of our involvement. It's unworthy of our attachment. So I'm going to say the obvious here is the remedy to ignorance is knowing how things really are. And so how does the mind come to know? How do we come to know? That's the big question. And we start on this process of knowing how things really are by first establishing a stable and clear mind. And this is where meditation begins. The purpose, the point of meditation is to help us establish a clear and stable mind. Thank you.
as opposed to the fluctuating, distracted, and cloudy minds that we often experience. Once our minds are stable and clear, we can come to insight as to, thing, as to how things really are. Uh, regain what uh, we call prajna, which is wisdom or understanding, which is the next virtue we will talk about. But right now we're talking about uh, meditative concentration. Once our ignorance is defeated, all negative states of mind are eliminated. A stable, clear mind is brought about through meditative concentration. But we all know that we've lost control over our minds much of the time. So the untamed mind is running the show. We don't realize we can control this mind. We think, oh, it's controlling me. And our thoughts are controlling us. And this is the root of all suffering, an untamed mind. So how do we overcome what's really bad habits? We overcome them through meditation. And through meditation's ability to concentrate the mind. Now, <clears throat> this word concentrate may be a little weird, may be a little funny. Because in meditation, it's not that we want to have, you know, something, how do I say, forced. That's not the idea. Concentration means basically uh, the progressive elimination of distraction but that is brought about by a mind that is not straight jacketed, but is relaxed. So meditation is not something really straight jacketed. That's how I'll put it. So we say we develop a mind and there's two words for this, this process. One is shine, shine, she, uh, meaning quiet or peace, nay, meaning abiding. So we're abiding in peace. And shamata, which is a Sanskrit word, shine is the Tibetan word. So we, through this process, we develop a mind that is neither disturbed nor tied up. A mind not agitated by uh, extraneous thoughts. But all of us, when we venture into meditation, we find, oops, we do have agitated thoughts. They come up. 
anybody who has done any meditation knows that to be the case, right? These arise in our mind. So what's the cause of all this agitation? It's basically, if you think about it for a moment, it is this attitude of, I need this, I want that, I can't get this. Thoughts that come up about the worldly concerns of fame, recognition, money, power, all these things come up in our meditation. Worldly concerns. It's about thoughts about what makes us happy, what makes us sad, fame, insignificance, the fear of being insignificant, wanting something, and the fear of losing things. So it's all like that. These thoughts arise in the mind. It's, it's natural that that would happen for the untamed mind. So what we have to do is we have to develop meditative concentration. And to do that, quite honestly, we need some solitude. Now, again, we're not monks who can go out into the hills and uh, meditate in caves. Some years ago, when I was in Tibet, uh, we toured various monasteries and uh, Sometimes on the hills you would look at and you would see honeycombs with uh, little uh, retreat caves where the monks would go out and retreat for sometimes years at a time. Well, you and I, <laughs> that's, not our, that's not what we can do. We can't go out into caves and meditate. Probably not anyway. We can't go into the desert or to a high mountain. What we can do, however, is we can meditate, and that is our isolation, our solitude. We can find a place where we meditate, isolate ourselves for the moment, find a special place in our house that we call sacred. Someplace. I was talking to a woman some years ago. She had three or four children, I can't remember, and they were all like under the ages of five. And she said, for right now, now she changed later, but for right now, the only place she had that was <laughs> that she could get away from her children was her bathroom. And so she would go into her bathroom to meditate. Well, uh, that later changed, but you know, wherever you need to go to find a sacred space that's yours in your home, that's your isolation. And there and therein you meditate. But we also have to recognize that isolation is, is required more than that, because not only do we physically have to put ourselves uh, in a place. We also have to mentally isolate ourselves from all of our worldly concerns. 
Um, one of the things that we sometimes, and it happens, it develops as a habit. We go, we find our, our sacred space. We sit there, but we use it to sort of revelry, you know, to think about, you know, what's going, what's my day going to be? What's the day? You know, this happens. <laughs> we forget the purpose of why we went there in the first place. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I have. It's a mindless uh, lack of awareness of what I'm doing. I don't isolate myself mentally from all those distractions. So when I'm sitting down, I have to actually come to the strong conviction that for right now, for this period of time that I'm meditating, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not going to revelry about what is happening uh, two hours from now or what happened last night. I see smiles on some people's faces. <laughs> We've all had that experience. Oh, I'm here to meditate. <laughs> I've been doing everything else, but. And that's, a, you know, again, it's a question of diligence. It's a question of reapplying ourselves, bringing ourselves back. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, well, no, I'll go ahead for a little bit here uh, and talk about uh, meditative concentration. I'll go a little bit further. Uh, when thoughts uh, come up, uh, when we find that we're uh, having lots of thoughts uh, that uh, center around the idea of desire, what we can do is meditate on the unpleasantness of some things. Desire frequently centers around our body, right? What we want, what we don't want, the pleasures involved, all that sort of thing. And our uh, lineage masters tell us we could actually, if we actually looked at the body, if we saw the body for what it is, it's not all that pleasant. It's bones and tissues, blood, urine, feces, all these kinds of things that are not that pleasant. Now that sounds a little uh, maybe harsh, but it isn't. It's 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 actually seeing the body for what it is. And so meditating on this, uh, becoming familiar with what the body really is can be quite helpful in lessening, tapping down this fixation you have on our body. We wanna take care of our bodies for sure. And that's important, but fixating on it, uh, we wanna work on that. The second thing we can do when, uh, if anger arises, is we can meditate on loving kindness. Again, that's been covered in an earlier chapter, and uh, you can refer back to that uh, if anger is one of the things you have difficulty with. 
they say that by uh, meditating on the similarity of ourselves with and uh, uh, with others, that we can overcome jealousy, becoming familiar with the idea that we're all in this boat together. We then can work on our jealousy. Uh, pride, the way we can work on that is to meditate on exchanging ourselves for others. That's Tong Lin. Uh, Lama Kathy has frequently taught on that technique. And finally, if, if, we, if we're sort of like all the disturbing emotions come up in our minds all the time, there's no one in particular. What we can do is uh, meditate uh, with uh, using the breath as our support. There are many different techniques of using the breath as a support. But basically, uh, these techniques are intended to bring us to the point where we learn to control our mind. There's another practice that's a bit more involved and a little bit advanced and something that we may not be able to do with really strong uh, emotions at, at first. And that is to simply, when a strong emo uh, emotion arises, to simply rest in the nature of our mind. In other words, the spaciousness of our mind and then look inward. Look inward. If it's anger, look it inward to that. And within this vast space of our mind that is so spacious, when we look at anger, it has no no existence. It simply sort of vanishes. That's an advanced technique. And what I would suggest, rather than trying some really strong emotion and trying to deal with it this way, what you might do is take some minor irritation that you're experiencing throughout the day and simply rest in the nature of your mind. Just rest peaceably, then look inward to that irritation and see it just sort of vanish. So start with small things. So in the open space of our mind, we look at these things. It requires, this, this technique requires a certain amount of experience having meditated. You have, you have to have had some degree of a quiet um, and proficiency in meditation. Well, we only have about eight minutes for me to describe what is which is what is perhaps the most profound virtue we want to practice. So I don't know how we're going to do that in eight minutes. <laughs> um, and that, that virtue is uh, 
the virtue of wisdom awareness. Uh, so I'll, I'll do what I can and, uh, you know, hopefully we can come back to this at some other day. It's about knowing the way things really are. So if we, once we've established some degree of stability and clarity in our mind, we can then actually go and look uh, at how things really are, specifically how our minds are and outer reality. And basically, what we come to find out is that this self that we cling to, because of the clarity and because of the stability we have developed, when we look to find a self, we find none. It is empty, empty of anything of true existence. And the same thing about outer reality. We look to find something solid, real, and permanent, which is our habitual way of seeing reality as something solid, real, and permanent. We don't find it. We have this cherished belief in a self, but I'm going to tell you, it's sort of like, and it's, I can use a seasonal example here. It's sort of like our belief in Santa Claus. When we were little kids, we believed in Santa Claus, right? We actually we gave him, we, we put out cookies for them. We anticipated his coming. We visualized him coming down the chimney. We thought there was a Santa Claus. But one day, either by our parents telling us so or but are just putting it together, we realized there's no Santa Claus. And it's the same way about a self. There is no self. There's nothing solid, real, or substantial about it. Now, some folks, unfortunately, see this in a very nihilistic point of view that this emptiness, this lack of something solid, real, and substantial is, is something nihilistic, something we should be sad about. To the contrary, it's a very hopeful thought. It's a very hopeful understanding of reality in ourselves. Why? Because if we were solid, real, and substantial, nothing could change. And if nothing could change, then we couldn't go from where we are now to actual Buddhahood. So this idea that there is no solid, substantial, real self is a very hopeful thing, not sad. Furthermore, this idea of emptiness does not mean a vacuities, a vacuum, a space. Nor does it mean uh, something like uh, um, horns on a on a uh, on a rabbit. Emptiness is not like that. It's rather to be understood as 
for ourselves our infinite potential. They, in, the, in the text, they refer to it also as emptiness, luminosity, lim, uh, uh, emptiness, awareness. So uh, the, the whole idea of this, this idea of emptiness, we refine it, we keep working on it. It's, you know, sometimes we have some idea of what emptiness is and our teachers come along and knock on down and say, no, that, that's, not, that's not it. So we're always working on refining it. But on a very gross level, we can understand that it is not nothingness. It's not something, but it's not something. That's why we call it emptiness awareness. Emptiness to contradict, you might say, uh, the idea it's something but we call it awareness or luminosity to counteract the idea that it is a vacuity. So it is what we, we find is emptiness, awareness, emptiness, luminosity. This is a very difficult concept and it really requires us to do either a lot of analytical thought related to this idea of emptiness, or simply, and this is what we do too, is simply rest in the nature of our mind. Remember, there comes a point uh, in the chin raising practice where we rest our mind. And this is where we can begin to experience this emptiness, luminosity that we speak of. So uh, the next time you do chin raising and, and we're resting, this is where we're starting to come to some little degree of understanding about what this emptiness of mind and objects is all about. So uh, your practice for the next time, uh, the next time you do Chin raising is to pay attention to that. It's called the completion stage of, uh, of, of, uh, of the practice. Rest there. Now, also the point about this emptiness, luminosity, we're really trying to describe something that is beyond description. And we're simply using words as pointers to it. And that's why it's far better in some respects to actually uh, use the practice, uh, the chin raising practice, to come to uh, a personal understanding of that. So I'm going to end up here today. Um, I hope this has been somewhat helpful to you. I, I'll stay behind and if, if you have questions, uh, please put them, uh, note them, and I'll, I'll try to answer them when they, when they come on the, uh, the site, the uh, Columbus KTT site. I'll be glad to also answer there too. So I'll stick around to answer them. I'm sorry we don't have time here today. Um, but I really thank you for your attention today. Uh, 
I, uh, I hope that you gain something from it. Uh, I certainly appreciated your attention. Um, I hope you have a, a, a good holiday season, a Merry Christmas in whatever way you are going to choose to, to celebrate it. Mine's going to be over Zoom with my relatives. <laughs> We're not, uh, uh, and, uh, and a, a very simple celebration with my wife. But however you're going to celebrate it, I wish you well. And uh, also, I remind you that there is going to be a celebration um, with Lama Kathy, uh, and that will come, uh, uh, notices about that will be coming up both uh, at Christmas Day and New Year's. So look, uh, look for those notices uh, to come. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, let's dedicate the merit. So by this merit of thinking about and talking about uh, the virtues, uh, the paramitas, may we all come uh, to omniscience, to full Buddhahood, uh, by this same merit, may we overcome uh, wrongdoing, the enemy, from birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the stormy waves of samsara. May you and I free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. Thank you very much and uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.